So hello, Matt, and hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for joining the Social Housing Podcast from Voicescape. I'm delighted to be joined today by Matthew Baird from District 4 Social Housing Recruitment and the Social Housing Roundtable. Welcome, Matthew. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Pete. It's uh, really nice to have been invited on. Not at all. Not at all. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today, Matthew. I think our um, our paths in social housing, uh, whilst they haven't really crossed until very recently, have taken quite a similar journey. And I think um, particularly, let's start talking around the social housing roundtable. I, I chair a very similar group, the Income Service Network group. Um, so I'd like to kick off the, um, the conversation today, Matthew, um, to state, you know, there are loads of brilliant people in social housing. Um, and, and my feeling was that they're perhaps wasn't enough opportunities for them to come together to collaborate to share ideas and best practice so why do you feel that groups like the income service network group and the social housing roundtable are so important to the sector yeah i mean i know we've had a very very brief discussion about it and it's, it's great to have to have crossed paths i think there's there's not enough of um businesses out there as you mentioned there that, that give uh, give the opportunities to do that for me when i look at the social housing roundtable and I look at obviously your income services networking group quite often when and for me i guess it's two faceted one is that if you go to things like the cih conference or the NAPFED conference or like the big conferences it's it's only really kind of directors and chief execs who are there sometimes you'll get a head of service but but by and large it's 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 those kind of right at the very top of the tree as it were mm. um who don't always have very recent on the ground experience and actually that experience is invaluable but also they cost quite a lot of money and trying to get time off and trying to get booked again it, it becomes the same names of either big organizations or people who can afford to let people go whatever it'll be and i know from both your networking group and my own that some of the best input thoughts ideas you know um reactions that you get from people who will never be at those conferences or don't get the chance to be invited or might just have been to one but it's a very large group and often you just kind of sat there as part of a panel watching some other people kind of discuss things you don't get to input very much so yeah the the joy of the social housing roundtable and i'm sure it, it's the same with yours is the diversity of people the diversity of organizations that you get through and the real debate you know we get tenants coming on to the round table and 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 we get chief execs and quite often i mean they'll be from different businesses but they don't cross paths so mm. there'll be an idea thrown out there that you just don't hear in a normal networking group and it was quite a a compliment recently actually for somebody who there was we were doing a damp and mold round table there was a similar one going on from a, a large uh housing provider and a few people left the housing providers wanted to come to my round table and said all that's going on on the on the other podcast is people talking also together i guess networking group is people complaining whereas here you're coming up with ideas and going this yeah. is what can actually impact change and i think that's where networking at its best really kind of comes to fruition yeah i couldn't agree more and i think you know we, we've certainly found that um you get some proper actionable uh, takeaways from these groups you know to the people that can actually make those changes and implement them really quickly um and i suppose that's my you know my 10 years now um working supporting the social housing sector um what i've relished is the opportunity to embrace those conversations where 
I'm speaking to somebody that's got a great idea and they're willing to share that. And that's yeah. that's a beautiful thing in social housing. You know, it's people often get into social housing to, to for that greater social purpose. But then if they can spread that in a non-competitive environment, um, I, I think... There was a lot of fear, wasn't there, with people? And I remember, I mean, like I said, I've been doing recruitment now in social housing for 11 years, but I remember there was a recruitment networking group that started up. And for so long, people were like, oh, we can't go to that. We'll share ideas they, they'll steal our ideas they'll steal what we're doing yeah like yeah but they want to do with your clients if you talk vaguely but why not improve everybody by everyone getting a voice and i think that's what the round table and the and the networking group the, the income services networking group are all about it's getting people around the table and going right but what could we do collaboratively who has an idea because i mean i'm on the board for, for spring housing and i'm involved in other things but you never know who's going to give you that little light bulb moment to go, actually, that's something we could do. And yeah. then it comes down to, as you'll know, business culture to see whether or not that, that can actually be implemented. But it's brilliant to hear and being able to facilitate those conversations. I'm sure you feel the same when, when you just get some really good people who just want a voice almost and quite often don't always have it. it it's brilliant to see them kind of be really respected for having their own ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And for anyone that is listening and is interested in joining the, um, the the social housing roundtable, how would they get in touch? How would how would they best join you, Matthew? Yeah, so LinkedIn is always always brilliant yeah. for me. I mean, all my my email address and my phone number and everything else are on there. Um, there is a link tree um, could just called the SHRT, so you can find it through there. Um, or just like I said, just just drop me an email. LinkedIn's usually the easiest way to get in touch with me. But if not, just matt.baird at district4.io. Um and you can I'll, I'll get you set up on the mailing list, there's a mailing list and the rest of it. But there's a LinkedIn group. There's also a YouTube channel, so you can go on and watch the recordings there, which which I think is also really nice because and I'm sure it's the same with you and the recordings that you share people so often want to get involved but I mean we run it every single week which is a lot but it's every Tuesday 11 till 12 and it gets it gets a lot running them um we're actually doing two next week which is anyway it's one of those I'm, I'm a <laughs> sucker for punishment <laughs> I guess um and the joy of it is that if people do miss it and can't join they can still go back and watch watch the recordings on on YouTube and and then provide feedback and actually that's why a lot of people who've watched those recordings back say hi i've seen you doing the round table can i get involved and it's, yeah. it's just nice that it builds organically in that way yeah absolutely um good all right well um i'm sure we'll stick the links on the um on the on the page below as well um and I think just coming back to one of the topics that you mentioned earlier, damp and mould, um, I've recently just come back from the um, housing technology conference and it was everywhere. Um, the topic hit that is not, not damp and mould. <laughs> um, but I think if we look at the, um, the operating environment of social housing, the sector is always under the spotlight. There's some big issues. There's a headline um, uh, and often with some incredibly serious consequences. But um, and, and I know that the majority of people are doing as much as they can to rectify those issues. But the, the headline lines will always be there um but when we start to look at the the people at the top do you think there you know there's enough accountability being taken and you know i know that they're always being discussed and is there enough being done to review and rectify those um th those big challenges do you feel it's an interesting one and i think it's there have been a lot of controversies over the last year as we know i mean you've got our law which has now come in due to as you mentioned their damper mold and and the tragedy of the young boy dying um 
we've had issues obviously i mean we had grenfell like that feels like it was forever ago now but it really wasn't it's still very much recent history um and then you've had things like went on with obviously the the, uh, the tenant who was uh deceased in their flat for two years before the yeah. body was found and stories like this are i feel kind of coming more and more to fruition because you've got people um really speaking up and and social media has obviously blown blown a lot of these stories up and rightfully so I think accountability is probably the biggest buzzword in in social housing at the moment and rightfully so there's it's, it's a difficult one because where does the buck stop um you know obviously with uh with our um and everything that happened there the chief exec eventually resigned through through the board mm. um even though originally said he refused and well the buck does lie with him you know you do kind of go well what's happened to the director of assets what's happened to the people who were mm you know meant to be looking after these homes what about things like the call center what was going on there so it's very easy to go the accountability is always at the top but yeah it depends on the size of the business and the level of communication i think the problem is the stigma of social housing and, and everything that goes with it there is still this belief that people who live in social housing are somehow lesser or more stupid or whatever it might mm. be um and it's really really interesting to sit there and you know, really discuss with with so many people where where should the buck lie you know is it is it the board for example but then how much information does the board know and when you look at the stigma and and I mean I've spoken to directors of housing who've really particularly because of damper mold to be honest with you have done a bit of a deep dive into their complaints process yeah. and realizing that actually some of the call center staff aren't being empathetic they're kind of going oh God, it's another one fine yeah we'll deal with it just we'll add it to the list like it really disinterested almost and not really thinking about the fact that it's human beings living in these properties mm. that aren't up to standard um yeah we could talk about policies and things like right to buy and things like that over the years have unfortunately removed an awful lot of really high quality stock um and then was sold on into the private market so there is really old stock that isn't fit for purpose that businesses can't afford to just knock down and replace yeah. someone needs a home so someone lives there uh, and then not getting to the root cause of the problem so it's a huge thing I think we're going to see more and more of it um Lara Oya Daly who is the president of the CIH and who I know very well always talks about the one percent and by that yeah. if you're on a board and someone says well 99% achieved on this on that KPI and that KPI well brilliant but what about the one percent because if you've got yeah. 20,000 homes that's 2,000 properties um, or 200 properties. Um, you know, out of those 200 properties, how bad is the situation in those? Because yeah. it just takes one mm. and you get stories like that get blown up all over the media and people are dying. Yeah. So it, it's about really deep diving into all of your stock. And I think that's where the other side of accountability comes from boards, from chief execs, from directors is. Just because you're hitting a KPI doesn't mean you're succeeding right across the board. I think that's something that really needs to change. I have a real issue with KPIs in social housing anyway, because a lot of them are, uh, I think, sometimes just utilised to make people look good rather than actually going, well, where are the problems and are we dealing with the whole problem rather than going, oh, you've got damp and mould, cool, we'll come out, we'll bleach the walls and we'll leave you to it, knowing that it's going to come back in six months because it has done every six months for the last 10 yeah. years. 
I think, and, and that is such a fascinating point. I think, you know, um, the tenant's voice has become such a, um, uh, more than a buzzword, it's become a thread throughout social housing. Now, you know, I think, I think housing associations across the board do have a genuine appetite to hear the tenant's voice. And um, I think things like the, the, the TSM are going to support that. But interestingly, th there's quite um, a contrast when speaking with social landlords around TSM, um, wanting to recognise what's the best way of capturing that sort of feedback. Landlords, some landlords are scared um, to reduce the satisfaction response rates or, or satisfaction levels um, in favour of getting um, a better result, but not actually knowing the truth. And it's, you know, whereas others aren't scared of getting a low TSM and being bottom of that leaderboard as long as they're getting, and it's that's getting to the 1%, isn't it? Um, and that's, and I do a lot of work with um, a lady called Joe Leckie, a big picture training, because that's the whole training comes down to culture around customer service. Mm. And it's exactly that that you're talking about. It's it's that piece of, you know, I mean, the government have, have said today that there's going to be social tenants to get the opportunity to scrutinise landlord strategies and policies under new proposals. And we're going to keep hearing more and more of this. And I had a tenant recently who was on the social housing roundtable. And I said, you know, and it was about tenant engagement versus tenant influence. And what was amazing in that was actually one of the tenants going, I've no interest in engaging with my social landlord. I just want to be left alone and have my house. And if I have an issue, get it fixed. Yeah. And actually, as we did a bit of a deep dive, you realized that's because they have been so fed up of not being listened to mm. and just ignored. And they don't feel, they felt that if they were going to get involved, you know, if they were going to be brought into a conversation, actually, it doesn't matter what they say, it would just get ignored at the end of the day. That's why they have no interest at all in getting involved with their landlord. Yeah. And that's where I think a lot of the issues come is tenants are fed up of not being listened to, are fed up of not being kind of utilised for the skills. And there's some amazing people in the, who are tenants in social housing. But back in the 60s and 70s, people wanted a social housing property. That's the irony of it. You know, they yeah, yeah. good quality stock. People wanted them. They were affordable. It was great if you got one. Now they're almost seen as, oh, you live in social housing or there's something go wrong in your life. Mm. No, it's just affordable. And yeah, it's good. There's a lot of good quality accommodation out there. Unfortunately, there's also a lot of bad. Yeah. So I think this idea of stigmatizing tenants, but also, as, as you mentioned there, of, of not listening to that influence and not listening to that feedback and getting feedback for the sake of getting feedback. Yeah. So you can boost your figures. I know. What is the point? Yeah. If you're Absolutely. not going to with it, if you're not going to really engage with those. I love these businesses that say, oh, we've got problem tenants. Great, let's get them in and talk to them. I know Saffron Housing, who are over in Norfolk, did just this because I know Hannah Harvey very well over there. And she came onto a round table and was very honest about it and said, yeah, we had serious problems when I joined the company a number of years ago. We are, we, you know, we were in all kinds of trouble with the regulation and everything else. Our, mm. our properties weren't good enough. And we got the most problematic tenants as they'd been labelled and the tenants with the loudest voices on Facebook and other areas and we brought them in and said, right, what are we getting wrong? Let's have a chat. Let's get you on side by telling you we will change it. We need to know what you need changing. Yeah. And the difference that had in culture, mentality, and listening to the actual issues of what's going on, rather than trying to fix what they believe need fixing, they went, what is it that's actually wrong? Because you're living in our properties. What's wrong? Let's work together to fix it. And that was, we need more of that, I feel, in the sector. Yeah. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, so having that 360 view and that awareness that um, 
addressing things up front actually can lead to a great thing. Um, yeah. So I, men- I mentioned earlier that I've just come back from the Housing Technology Conference and the, 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 the panel discussion on um, Wednesday morning opened with five CIOs of some pretty large organizations, most of their backgrounds, in fact, if not all of them, wasn't social housing at all. It was corporate IT and they've fallen into social housing. What came across from every single one of them was their passion for making a difference. And actually that reflective moment when they decided to go through the recruitment process and move into social housing, I'm actually going to, I can make a, a difference to people's lives here and that social purpose. Um, so when you as a recruiter into the social housing space, um, and I'm hearing this all the time, why do you think there is such a big challenge getting good people into social housing? You know, is, is there a skills deficit? Is, it, is the, the wages not attractive enough? Is the sector not sexy enough? What, you know, what's, what's the biggest challenge for social landlords getting the right people, the best people right now? I mean, it's a blend of what you've said there. Um... Going through, I mean, the first time I heard about social housing as a sector to work in was when I started recruiting in it 11 years ago. I knew nothing about it. I'd never heard it. I joined a, an agency at the time. Um, I mean, like I said, I set up for my own two bit years ago. It's the best thing I did, but you learn your craft through through an agency. And they they said, well, you're going to recruit in social housing. I said, well, how do you recruit for tower blocks? I don't understand. And that's what I knew. I knew it was council housing. I knew it was tower blocks. That's, that's what I knew. First and foremost, no one knows about it. And this, uh, you may have seen recently, a, um, the government has said now that they're going to be introducing mandatory qualifications into social housing. There are pros and cons in that. They're saying it's been for management and above and, and these kind of things. I think they're missing a trick by not doing more apprenticeships from a young age to get people into it and, and to train up. Uh, and whether or not the training's right and stuff is, is a whole other debate. But there's an issue of people not knowing about the sector. Wages are always going to be a challenge, but then there are some incredible wages in social housing. There's some people on a lot of money. Um, every year, Inside Housing does a CEO report, mm. and some of the CEOs are on well more money than the Prime Minister. And let's, let's not beat around the bush. They're on some incredible cash. So there is money out there, and most chief execs, and I mean, this isn't all, but most are on six figures plus. So there's definitely a career trajectory there. Um, whether ways are fair across every level is a whole other debate, and I don't, I don't feel they are. Um, I think it's a big issue with what people call entry level roles or housing officer roles. Um, there's also a big problem with people having left the sector post COVID. Housing became a very traumatic sector for many through the whole pandemic and everything and, and the lockdowns, yeah. and a lot of people burned out. And maybe weren't given the support they needed or weren't given enough encouragement to maybe come back and take the time they needed but also yeah some people kind of went actually i'm going to go be an independent consultant um and finally i guess my big one and it, it kind of ties in a bit about what you said there and it's an interesting one about cios going i want to go in i want to make a difference which is, which is amazing and exactly what the sector needs at the very top of social housing it is still very very white and male and yeah. yet you look across the sector as a whole and it isn't there's so much diversity across the sector as a whole and i mean i, I can talk about it because it was it was something there was one very large housing association the g15 who recently recruited a new chief exec from completely outside the social housing space who'd never worked in it and it created a lot of controversy because 
he was a white guy and people were kind of going you had the opportunity here to be you know your big london landlord to kind of go right well let's introduce some diversity somewhere into our business or let's let's showcase maybe what we're doing but or at least if we're going to recruit white male let's recruit someone who's been in the whole thing space for a number of years to just recruit from outside in the sector does need to change it needs fresh ideas and i completely agree with that but on the flip side it also needs there are businesses like that the larger businesses that need to lead from the front on diversity mm. and if someone can showcase well actually i've worked in the sector for 20 years it's all i've achieved then brilliant no one's going to question it someone who's never worked in it to get the role over someone who has probably worked in the sector for 15 20 years worked their way up and through they're kind of going i've been overlooked again why bother staying in it and, yeah. and i'm speaking to a lot of people at Fortree, and they are often uh, non-white and, and often female people who are, are turning around and saying I'm done um you know i've been i've been working on this for however long and i just keep getting overlooked for every role and there's Recruiting in the executive space is an interesting one. I think that a lot of the big names which go round and round and round, you know, there's there's some large businesses who are very well known for doing executive recruitment in the social housing world. They kind of just recycling the same names around and round again. It's the same people yeah. being put around and put round. So when I've done executive recruitment, when I've spoken to people about actually what I'm going to do differently, it's not always about psychometric testing. It's not about going through all this stuff. It's going, well, actually, these are people that share your values or want the values that where yeah. your business is going. And this is a diverse shortlist. Yeah. If anyone tells me who in housing can't produce a diverse shortlist, I'll be honest with you, it's either being lazy or they're lying. Yeah. Because there is so much, so much diversity and so many people chomping at the bit for an opportunity. It's difficult then for people who just go, I've just had enough. They leave the sector, they set up on their own or they go and set up a consultancy service that works with the sector. But it means the sector are losing good people. Yeah. So... There are issues across recruitment and retention right across the board. Salaries are tough, particularly mm. when you look at support workers and the money available in supported housing. Yeah. You know, you're looking 24, 25, 26,000. A few years ago, yeah, okay, fine, I could probably get by on that. These days, that doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. I think if you're, if you're more London or big city based. So it, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge for the sector, and I don't know where they're going to find more money. Um, mergers are a whole other problem unto themselves, but. I think we need to start kind of saying there should be a I put up a poll that said should there be a cap on chief exec salaries and we had like 250 300 votes and it yeah. was 50 50 yes and no, yeah. it was it, yeah and I think if I put it along the lines of should there be a cap in line with a percentage increase from your lowest paid worker I think a lot of people would have said yes yeah um because I think that's where the disparity is. It's if you've got a chief exec on three hundred thousand and you're happy to pay, but you're not willing to pay more than twenty thousand to a support worker, then something there yeah. isn't isn't matching up. Yeah. No. No. I, th I think that you know you can um, you, you can slice that cake up many different ways, and I think if you look at both ends of it, and I've seen the challenges with getting the right people into these roles, and. I think it, 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 you know, let's, let's start at the top end at the chief exec level. There's a lot of people that wouldn't be attracted to the social housing sector because, frankly, and if we look in the commercial sector, they could probably earn significantly more for managing a similar size organisation with similar um, similar budgets, but without the risk, you know. And let, let, mm. let's not forget this is a sector that's under a heavy spotlight. Um, 
so I, I I kind of I kind of get that, but I do think it needs to be in proportion with the, the total workforce. And at There's the other also end, no good news stories. I completely agree with you there no. on this part because everything coming out at the moment is this is a sector that's in trouble. It's falling yeah, apart. It's, it's a nightmare, and partly that is national rhetoric. But I agree with you. There's so many good news and so much amazing work that goes on, but that's never in the never in the media. No. And, and, you know, it's, it's that 1% again that Laura refers to, and it, it's actually far less than 1%, you know, that, that makes the headlines. And it's, it's a really sad state, but those that in the sector know those good stories and it's, you know, and the, the, you know, the, the, the great work that goes on uh, to support, to support our, our tenants. Um, but at the other end, and this is something I wanted to speak to you about as well. So I, I had um, dinner with a, a director recently and she was telling me that in their customer services team and their income collection team they've stopped recruiting from within the sector um you know they've, they've not made a, a blanket decision but that they've they've typically not been doing that and they've been re- recruiting from restaurants from cafes from hotels people with great customer service and they've had huge success in doing that what's your view and what would you advise your clients to do um couldn't agree more um there is i think what's interesting is there's been a lot of bad practice in some businesses that just has and people have kind of gone round and round or been in it for a number of years and they're just housing in itself has changed they're frustrated with the sector themselves yeah. that pays in the customer service and the rest of it i was with a uh i, I was going down that sat down with his board and the directors of the business to talk about recruiting recently, particularly in kind of supported housing and, and in customer service. And you know, we're struggling, particularly with temp, we're struggling to hire staff to come in and hit the ground running and things like that. And I was like, okay, well talk me through your last bit of recruitment. And this team had hired three new staff three new staff. One of them was really experienced and the other two brand new to the sector and very, you know, very green as it were. And the most experienced person didn't work out. Mm. And I was like, well that's well, why? And so we did a bit of a deep dive. And what became clear was first and foremost, when you've got somebody who is new to the sector, you spend more time with them. So therefore, they're getting more of the culture. They're getting more of that impact. They're not expected just right. They are. There's your first induction right off. You go and crack on. So that makes a big impact because you buy into the business. People used to stay in roles they hated because their friends were there or because they liked the manager. They might not like the job, but you stayed in it for longer because that's, I mean, I'm sure you had the same when you were growing up. That was that's what you did. You stayed in the role for four, five, six yeah, years. Yeah. These days, two to three is normal. Um, so, so there's that side, but also that's how we get more people into the sector. Because if you go to a restaurant and there's somebody who is absolutely exemplary, and you can get them to come in as a trainee housing officer, support worker, contact centre advisor, whatever it might be, um, team leader, if they've got good management skills, let's not forget that people are often promoted because they're good at the job they do, not because they're good managers. <laughs> so, uh, so team leaders are, you know, if you've got somebody who's got really good management skills and they can learn how a call centre works, well, then let's get them in and go with it. But also then they will tell their friends, their good friends, their people that they're going, actually, you'd be brilliant. Come and work with yeah. me. You can build a career here because that's the, that's this, the other side of it. And I'm sure you'll agree is, yes, people burned out, as I mentioned before. Yes, people with are leaving the sector but for a lot of people their people have been in the sector for 20 plus years yeah so yeah, yeah. people who fall into housing stay in it and stay in it for a long long time very few come in for two years very 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 few come in for a couple of years and then leave they come in and as you said that social purpose yeah that reasoning behind your job that understanding of 
I know why I do the role that I do yeah. um, really makes a difference because it matters to people, particularly amongst the generations that are coming through now. Social purpose is everything and places fall down because they don't advertise their social purpose. Yeah. So many businesses, so, and you'll know this in social housing, business go, oh, yeah, we, we need housing officers, we need support workers, yada, yada, yada. Um, we need heads of service. But when you enter the website, when you try and do a deep dive into what they're all about, you can't find it because there's so much humbleness that goes on in housing. Mm. No one's willing to champion their best stories or actually why they are a good employer. What makes you brilliant to work for? Yeah. Oh, well, we just support our tenants and that kind of, right, well, tell me how, tell me why. Yeah. And when you're good at that, then you attract more staff. Absolutely. And I, and I don't think that, the, you know, the social purpose should be underestimated, even though I'm kind of two degrees separated. I you know I had um, a sabbatical out of social housing and you, you don't underestimate the impact that that has on a Friday night when I get home and I think about what I've done. I know that the work that, that we do as a technology provider to the social housing space has an immense impact on people's lives. And, and that um the, the impact that, that has on my well-being, my positivity, my outlook on life shouldn't be underestimated. And I think you're right. That's why people stay in social housing for so long. It's, you know, it's a, it's a thread, often untalking about, unspoken thread that goes through their career. Um, so let, let's let's take a slight um, change in, in topic. And, and that's around sort of the, the macroeconomic climate that we find ourselves in now. And I think, unfortunately, like a lot of these macroeconomic um, challenges, social housing and social housing tenants find themselves probably at the sharper end of that. Things like the cost of living crisis, the, the fuel crisis right now. Um, and I've recognised the great work that a lot of landlords are doing to not only support their tenants, but support their staff. And is that something that you're seeing a lot of? And, um, and the, it, what impact is that having on recruitment and keeping people in social housing? Retention is massive and, and as you've mentioned before, a lot of people who work in social housing know they could earn more if they go to the private sector, but they stay mm. in it for the social purpose, but social purpose doesn't pay the bills. Yeah. And I think this is where I'm seeing, really seeing now the difference between community-led, smaller providers and big, large, basically private sector businesses that work in social housing but still classified as registered providers. Mm-hmm. Because I recruit, I recruit for one business up in the northeast that the chief exec and the directors chose to take no pay rise at all through the cost of living side to ensure that all of their staff at, the, uh, at a below kind of thirty five k all got a pay rise to ensure that you know it was a significant pay rise to make sure that our balances were offset. Businesses in Birmingham, like the one that uh, you know, like Spring, who I'm a board of, made sure there was money coming in that was found to make sure that bills could be paid support was given and what was clear and i think this is twofold firstly look thank you for giving us some money this is amazing it means a lot but b we can see you being fair yes you haven't got we're not one of these big businesses where you're on hundreds of thousands and loads and loads of money but you've given us we'd, we'd love more but what you've given us is fair and we understand why that was there because you know i can see where the money's been spread across the business and i think that's the other side of it and I think this is where strikes have come from. And I think if you know we talk about national, the national climate at the moment when it comes to strikes and people walking out and all the rest of it, is people don't mind being paid. People do mind being paid less. But if you're being paid less, but you feel it's fair and you can see why and the money's being distributed fairly, then you're like, right, okay, you know what? 
let's crack on. Mm. It's when you've got businesses making a lot of money and some people on a hell of a lot of cash coming through. Yeah. And yet those who are basically your groundfalls that are keeping things running, that are running things day to day, oh, there's no money for you. Yeah. And I think that's where the biggest issue is. And I think that's where retention has had a big, big part to play. But again, it comes back to culture. It comes back to, uh, I, I went to business recently and we were, there was a boy, what are you doing around retention? So, well, we're, we've done a cost of living crisis piece and we're trying to be as flexible as I can. I was like, okay, but when was the last time any of your staff had fun at work? And they kind of gave a look. Like I guarantee all of you can look back, but particularly when you were younger, at roles you did when you were in a more junior position, and you remember the fun days. You don't remember the day-to-day work. You might remember something. You remember the days you had fun. You remember the times yeah. you enjoyed. Or you remember your best friend that you worked with. Or you remember the best manager that you used to sometimes go and get a drink with or do something with. Where's that gone? Because, yes, we've gone to flexible hybrid working. Yes, we've, people are working from home and those kind of things. But people stay in businesses because they enjoy the business they're working for or they enjoy the manager they're working for. So where's that side? And that's a huge piece of retention is – Staff are burning out because they're pulled left, right, and ten, left, left, right, and, and and through the middle, as it were. But there's a huge piece there about people forgetting you meant to enjoy what you do. Yeah. Yes, people enjoy going out and supporting tenants and getting a win, but you also meant to enjoy the culture of the company you're with. And on those bad days where you used to have a, you know, you get back to the office, it's been awful. But your colleagues will pick you up, or your manager will say, "Look, just go and take an hour, go home an hour early, or whatever it will be." catch up over a cup of tea at some point we'll have a chat or hey what let's go another cup of now and have a proper breakdown of it that's gone because people then go home they've got nowhere to let go of that and they feel alone and isolated so there's a big piece around making sure that that hybrid working is is really working in favor of both sides and people are guess valuing that human connection again because it is important it's really really important and be that in recruitment and retention I'm not going to go and join a business if I walk in and it's deadly silent and no one wants to be there and everyone's looking yeah. a bit sad and half the off, you know, we're in a big, big building and two thirds of it's empty. I'm like, why do I want to join here? Yeah. No matter what I'm being paid, it's, this just doesn't look like an enjoyable place to work. So those first impressions when it comes to recruitment and retention are massive at the moment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And actually on that point, you know, I've actually just been recruiting internally here this morning. Um, and one of the interview questions that we we gave the candidate was tell me the last time you had fun. And it's so interesting to hear um, the response to that and the um, the recognition that it was, you know, it was a workplace example that they gave. And I thought that was wonderful to to hear, you know, that story um, and, and potentially something that would have been missed in a, in a, you know, in a in a hybrid role where they were spending lots of time at home, um, you know, and I think hybrid absolutely has its place. And I mean, I know businesses that do suddenly have gone. Yeah, we need to bring our away days back in. Or we used to do yoga in the morning. Right, like, tell you what, let's bring that back in because even if a few people just travel in early or whatever it might be, yeah. they'll have something to do with colleagues. These things matter, and I think everyone got so excited about finally we can work from home because social housing was way behind the curve in terms yeah, of yeah. people working from home. Some businesses weren't, some businesses were doing it for a while, but the majority of housing was like, this just accelerated things by five, six years. Yeah. But they've shown it can work and people got excited by, great, I don't have the commute and I don't have this, but now people are going, I miss working with people. I miss seeing people every day. I feel it. Like I said, I, I, you know, I, I, my business is me, myself and I working from home in, in this room most of the time, unless yeah. my partner's at home. 
and I've joined co-working spaces and done things like that because I'm a social person and I need to be around people. And there are also days where I'm just going, I just need to have a rant at someone or something. Yeah. And there's only seven times that Casey can take that. So it's, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, it's, but so the fact that you're, you're advocating that as part of your interview question is huge because people are like, oh, yeah. they value having fun at work. They value that yeah. actually you're allowed to enjoy yourself at work. Yeah. That's the other side of it. So many businesses stopped doing that. Stopped yeah. really being... You've got to get, if you've got time to have a laugh, you've got time to work, and, and that might have yeah. to change. No, 100%. I mean, we are social creatures um, at a fundamental level, and being around other people and having teammates to pick you up. I mean, the, the, the sorts of conversations that um, housing officers, income officers are having right now with tenants are often really challenging, and to take that all on you know in spite of what else is going on in their own lives let's not let's not forget that without the morale and the support and the fun of work it's easy to see why people might move away from the sector and it's such a credit to the 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 social housing community and the landlords that they they make work fun they give people that platform to enjoy and to support each other um so yeah i think that take on their feedback so they value them and they feel valued and i think that's the the other side of it is, is knowing that actually and this is one thing i think sometimes that that is missed of customers you know of um, staff satisfaction service and things like that mm. do you enjoy yourself how do you feel about progression yada, yada yada it's all great do you feel valued or when's the last time you felt truly valued in what you do and that yeah. part is so telling because mm. quite often you just find oh yeah probably we're not valued that isn't the time you right but why don't you feel valued because that's a concern because if you don't feel yeah. valued you're not going to stay very long yeah, absolutely. Very good. Well, just one final um, topic just to pick on. I think it'd be remiss of me not to in when we're chatting recruitment, when we're chatting social housing. We've seen so many things in our lives change as a result of um, our exit from um, the European Union and, and Brexit. How's that played out in social housing? Have we, have we found a skill shortage? Have we found other challenges, material? I don't know. Talk to me about that, Matthew. Yeah, I think particularly in, I guess, the asset management and the repairs side of things. Um, so I'm part of District 4. We are a network of independent recruiters who want to do it by ourselves, but who don't want to be alone. So we share resources, we share a CRM, we've got other things that we do, but we all work in our own specified field. And, and uh, a good a good friend of mine has become a good friend over the last three years, called Ian. Uh, specialises in maintenance and operatives and, and the asset management side. It's had a massive impact, an absolutely massive impact. And also it's it's created a, you know, you talked before about people coming into the country who might be wanting to try different roles or coming over and getting involved or who can support communities that are already here. And I think that's the other massive area. There are so many communities, so many hundreds of communities in Britain that aren't British by that, aren't, aren't, aren't traditionally English, you know, I know what I'm trying to say, I'm sure it's coming across okay, I hope so. You know, we've got so many European and other communities living here, and yet we'd love to hire Romanian speakers or whatever it might be to come on and go, hey, look, can you come and work with X, Y, Z? Because, mm. you know, we'd love people who could speak Romanian and go over and, oh, well, you can't because you can't work here. And, and yeah. things like that have created a big, big impact. Um, and I think also, you know, cultures... I, you know, very much into themselves are something that's the more broad your culture is as a business, the better you run. You know, that, that's just 
That's just yeah. it, we've seen it in so many studies. Um, and so when I look at skill shortages, when I look at certainly um, supply shortages as well, are massive. Yeah, when 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 these maintenance teams things right, well, we've got to fix X Y Z. Right, well, we can't get supplies. We can't get supplies. Yeah. So it's now gone up so exponentially. They're trying to use different materials, or you're trying to find other ways to fix it. Suddenly, little problems become bigger problems, become very large problems very quickly. Whereas previously, that wasn't the case. And I also know, unfortunately, of people who are European or or not white British who have felt that those people who maybe celebrated Brexit over the top in businesses, they, they then felt, well, I, I don't want to be here because yeah. I, I don't feel there's a company that wants diversity in that way. And that isn't the full decision behind why, why the decision was made, but it's how people feel and maybe how the national rhetoric went with it. So it's an interesting one. Um, I don't think it's going to improve because we've got a massive skill shortage in so many sectors in Britain anyway. Everybody is clamouring to hire the staff and I mean the NHS is clamouring for every single person they can get and everyone else is doing it. So social housing as a sector that people don't know about, as a sector that going through school you never hear about as a, as a sector to go work in, despite the fact yeah. that you can work as anything and everything in social housing. Um, <clears throat> It's an industry that really does have a social value like the police or the fire service or the NHS, whatever it will be. But again, people don't know about it. That pool of people they're trying to recruit from is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. And yet we've made that smaller through decisions like Brexit. So it is inevitably, inevitably going to have a knock on effect. Um, but it, it's kind of decisions made. And I think this is where well, I go back to my earlier uh, kind of point when I said, have a look at people who haven't worked in housing and really think and this is the challenge i give to every provider really think about what you can teach someone in that first month because if you're creating for anything at a more entry or junior level that first month you teach so much anyway regardless of if someone's coming with experience or not so when you say oh they have to have worked in housing or have to have worked as this that or the other before do they? Or do they just have to have the core values that match your own? And they have to have the core values and skill sets. Are they good at administration? Is there going to be a lot of paperwork? Yes, but yeah. that can be in any sector. Are they empathetic? Right, well, you don't need to have worked in housing to be empathetic. There's people in housing who aren't empathetic. So it, there needs to be a big mindset shift. Um, and then I guess adversely then, make sure that if you're, unless you absolutely have to, if you're recruiting for any senior roles or executive roles in housing, but now try your very best to recruit from within because that's also going to attract people to the sector. If they go, oh, I started off as a support worker and now I'm a director of whatever. The more stories we have like that, the more people yeah. look at it as a sector to go, I'd love to come and work in this rather than going, yeah, I came in there, I reached manager, I could never get promoted, so I left. Yeah. And that is yeah. more damaging to the sector. Yeah, no. I think that's a brilliant note to to finish things on, Matthew. I think some real key takeaways in just that last 60 seconds. So it's been an absolute pleasure as always, Matthew. And I'd encourage all of our listeners to to join the Social Housing Roundtable through all the channels that Matthew mentioned earlier. And of course, if you are income related, join the Income Service Networking Group.